Before we get into our discussion of karma, there was one point in the initial scope teachings that I sort of skipped over quickly, as many people often do. This is the discussion of the sufferings of the three lower realms, three worse realms, I prefer to call them. Actually, the Tibetan word for it means the three bad realms. So bad is a bit heavy to say, so I call them worse. There's no word there, I mean lower realms. Let me not get into a discussion of etymology. <laughs> I will refrain. Okay. Now, some people like to uh, make a Dharma-like version of the lower realms, the worst realm. Now I said lower. Of the worst <laughs> realms. And, in fact, make a Dharma-like version of all the various six realms, we can accept that there are humans, we can accept that there are animals, some of us might accept that there are spirits or ghosts, not everybody, but some people in some cultures will, but other life forms are a bit difficult. And so the Dharma-like version is that these realms are really talking about psychological states or mental states of humans. And there is an aspect in the teachings, a point in the teachings, which says that after rebirth in one of these realms, then there will be a residue, a slight residue of that type of experience in a human rebirth, if there is a human rebirth that follows them. So it will be something similar in a human experience. But this is not the real thing, six realms. So now we have to go to the real thing. And as we saw in our discussion of real thing dharma, Everything is based on an understanding of a mental continuum, mental activity with no beginning and no end. Very crucial. And if we examine the various parameters of what is experienced in terms of things like sights and sounds and physical sensations and happiness, unhappiness, etc., these are different parameters that can be experienced. These are parameters that affect our experience, that color our experience. Interest, disinterest, attention, no attention. For each of these parameters, we're talking about a whole spectrum, right? A spectrum from total interest to total disinterest, right? Total attention to total no attention. Total anger to no anger whatsoever. Los yeah, we're talking about a spectrum, and what we experience is somewhere on that spectrum. So, this is the case with sight, for example. There's a whole spectrum of light. There's a whole spectrum of light. Ahí existe todo un espectro luminoso. And with the hardware of a human being, the human body, we are only able to perceive a certain amount of that spectrum. So we're not able to perceive ultraviolet or infrared. You know, we have to use mechanical hardware to perceive that. But the hardware of an owl, for example, is able to perceive sights that we can't perceive, for instance, in terms of, for human hardware, uh, too much darkness. With the hardware of a dog's ears, dog can hear sounds of higher frequency than the hardware of human ears can hear. Right? With the hardware of a dog's nose, can smell far more sensitive, delicate smells at a far larger distance 
than with our human hardware. So this is quite clear. So just because the hardware of a human body can't perceive a certain portion of a spectrum of sense information doesn't mean that it's impossible beyond those borders for those portions of the spectrum to be perceived. It just requires different hardware. And just because we can't see ultraviolet and infrared light doesn't mean that ultraviolet and infrared light doesn't exist. And if we think of our individual mental continuum, which is not restricted to having one particular type of hardware that is connected with one type of body, then why not mental activity? Our individual mental activity is capable of perceiving anywhere on these spectrums. So if this is the case with the spectrum of sights and sounds and smells, as we've just seen, is there any reason why this should not also be the case with the spectrum of pleasure and pain? Right? We speak in terms of tactile sensations. Those are physical sensations. Tactile isn't the correct word. Physical is much larger than just tactile. So, with the human hardware, when the pain becomes too strong, then we automatically shut down. You become unconscious. That doesn't mean that greater amounts of pain don't exist. It's just that our hardware is incapable of perceiving it. It has a safety mechanism that shuts down. And the same thing is true, since we're in this discussion, we might as well speak about the other side of the spectrum in terms of pleasure, the opposite of pain. I'm talking about physical, physical sensation of pleasure. Then, if we analyze this objectively, we similarly have a mechanism in our hardware that destroys or stops pleasure when it also reaches a certain level. If you think in terms of the pleasure of sexual experience, when it reaches a certain level, one is drawn more quickly and more quickly and more quickly basically to end it with an orgasm. And the same thing with an itch. If we analyze an itch objectively, an itch is intense pleasure. It's not painful, an itch. It's pleasure, but it's too pleasurable, and we have to destroy it. We have to end it. It's not a joke, actually. <laughs> I'm very serious. For a number of years, probably around five years, I had a chronic itch. My scalp and my forehead itched violently a great deal of the time. And doctors could not at all figure out what was causing it. So the only way to be able to deal with that, to live with that, was to recognize that this was pleasure and relax and enjoy it. And although that required a tremendous amount of mindfulness and concentration, when I was able to do it, then it was okay. I was not disturbed by the itch. But normally, if we have a mosquito bite, it's too much. You have to destroy that sensation, don't we? So the body automatically shuts down. So, why can't there be the hardware of a living being that is able to perceive further on the spectrum of pain and further on the spectrum of pleasure in analogy with there is hardware of living beings that can experience further on the spectrum of sight, sound, and smell. Why not? There is no logical reason. Why not? And the same thing for the spectrum of the mental factor of 
happiness and unhappiness. Don't confuse happiness and unhappiness with pleasure and pain. Those are different. Happiness or unhappiness can accompany any type of physical experience or mental experience. We can experience the pain of a strong massage with great happiness, you know, because, ah, it's relieving the muscle. It hurts, but I'm happy. Podemos no pain, no gain. Right? I'm happy that, you know, I'm getting this hard, painful massage. I'm not unhappy. I'm happy that I'm getting this. So happy and unhappy, that's a different parameter from pain and pleasure. Así. Why? We get so unhappy that we get depressed. If you really get unhappy, what do you do? You kill yourself. So there are limits with our hardware of how much unhappiness we can take. So why can't there be greater unhappiness and greater happiness on either side of the spectrum beyond that which we as human beings can tolerate? And if this is the case, that the limit, the further limits, the extremes of the spectrums can be perceived by mental activity, then connected with that would be the appropriate hardware of a body, an appropriate type of body that would be able to perceive it. And my mental continuum then has the capacity to be able to experience anything, any portion of these spectrums and generate the appropriate hardware for being able to perceive them. And just because with my human hardware I'm not able to perceive the hardware of a body that could experience extreme pain and extreme unhappiness doesn't prove that that type of hardware doesn't exist. It's just beyond the spectrum of what my hardware can perceive, my human hardware. So do these different realms, uh, the environments of these realms, do they exist in reality? Sure, it exists with as much reality as a human realm exists. Entonces, 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 mental continuum of mental activity and my individual mental activity is capable of experiencing the entire spectrum of sight, sound, pleasure, pain, happiness, unhappiness. And the fact that there would be a, an associated appropriate physical hardware for that um, is not really the main point in my understanding of this. Estas cosas it has to be appropriate hardware. It's secondary. So I wouldn't leave it in the realm of imagination that I could sit there and meditate and imagine feeling extreme pain. It's really actually quite hard to imagine, isn't it? For it to be as real as actually feeling that pain. So it would be nice if, you know, well, this is only talking about something that you could experience in meditation, the suffering of the different realms. But who are we kidding? Try to remember or imagine what it was like to have your tooth drilled without Novocaine. Perhaps Pero, most of us have experienced that. Try that for a moment. Does it hurt? No. Who are we kidding? <laughs> so, come on. We're talking here about an actual experience of 
these streams on the spectrum of pleasure and pain. Okay? So, this is, I think, a helpful way, I hope, at least helpful for me, of thinking of these different realms. See, this is a consequence. Explain what the word this means in my sentence. But it's a consequence of really taking refuge, a safe direction. If I really am convinced that Buddha was not an idiot, and everything that he said was meaningful, and meaningful for helping others to overcome suffering, he didn't say anything stupid or irrelevant, then that means that everything that I find in the teachings, I take seriously. And if I don't understand it, then I try to figure out what in the world could this mean. So, when Buddha was speaking about these different realms, he wasn't joking. So, in terms of initial scope, you know, the real thing, I mean, to really take seriously these worst rebirth states. Así and que... that I really don't want to experience them. And our being able to take it seriously is dependent on our understanding of what is mental activity, what is a mental continuum, or and what is going on forever. Okay? That's not an easy pill to swallow, I know. <laughs> now, karma. <laughs> we won't go into the great complexities of karma. Let's speak on a practical level. Okay. We think in terms of future lives. How seriously do we take future lives? And what are we doing that is going to ensure the quality of our future lives? So, take myself as an example. Since I've been speaking a little bit within the framework of how I've been relating to this material, I've been working you know, a lot on this initial scope. Very difficult, this initial scope. So, I have made this enormous website of Dharma material. So, part of my motivation, my aim, of course, is to benefit others who might read this. But I must uh, admit that part of my motivation is for my own benefit, because I'm thinking if I put enough energy into this, I'm so strongly connected to this that in future lifetimes I'm going to be very instinctively drawn to this as a child, if I'm a, a human being. And so I'm preparing for future lives, doing something that is going to help draw me back to the Dharma in my future lives at a very early age. I'm going to find this website and, you know, wow! I just, you know, want to do that. However, if I look at this, then I see that I am perhaps building up the causes for reconnecting quickly with the Dharma when I have another precious human rebirth. But am I really building up the causes for the precious human rebirth? Am I fooling myself? Am I doing a slight Dharma-like version now of the initial scope? Oh, thinking that if I make this website, well, that's enough. So this is what we always have to examine with these three scopes. You know, am I really, you know, have this as my total type of person that I am, the scope of what I'm aiming for, or am I fooling myself and leaving out parts? Right? To be, as I've said several times, to be a person of any of these scopes needs to be something that affects our whole attitude toward life. So, go back to the teachings. It says very clearly, causes for a precious human rebirth, the main cause is ethical self-discipline. 
restraining from acting destructively. Right? There are many different forms of ethical self-discipline. Ethical self-discipline also to engage in constructive things, ethical like meditation, ethical self-discipline to help others. But here we're talking specifically about the discipline to refrain from acting destructively. Now we have a list of the ten destructive actions. We don't need to go into great detail. And these are just the most significant destructive actions. There's plenty more. So, how seriously do I take these instructions about avoiding destructive actions? Now, we're not talking about becoming a fanatic uh, about this, and so stiff, <laughs> and so on, that I never do anything destructive whatsoever. This Let's is imagining that we have to be a saint. Not quite at that level yet. But we need to develop, to observe what we're doing, and when we start to act destructively, recognize the disadvantages of it, and on the basis of understanding the disadvantages of it that will bring unhappiness, the experience of suffering of unhappiness to me, there's no guarantee what it will be the effect on somebody else, but I can guarantee what the effect will be on me in the future is unhappiness, and then not wanting to experience that, I restrain myself from acting destructively. So why don't I refrain from acting destructively? Well, it's because I am, the basic reason is that I'm not convinced on a deep level that unhappiness and suffering results from acting destructively. And if I'm experiencing unhappiness now, and suffering, pain, etc., particularly unhappiness is what's specified here, then... That is the result of having previously acted destructively. So if I don't want to continue experiencing that, I will refrain from any further destructive behavior. Now we have to be convinced. And if I'm experiencing unhappiness now, and suffering, pain, etc., particularly unhappiness is what's specified here, then that is the result of having previously acted destructively. So if I don't want to continue experiencing that, I will refrain from any further destructive behavior. Now, we have to be convinced of the causal relationship between destructive behavior and unhappiness, and the causal relation between constructive behavior and happiness. Easy. That's not easy. Right? I mean, that confidence, that conviction in the causal relationship here is the key factor, isn't it? For really becoming a person of initial scope. And of course, there is, you know, there's laziness, etc., even if we are convinced. But that's a further level. So, if we look at the texts, the way that this is explained is that our conviction, we can gain valid inferential understanding of this based on authority. In other words, if what Buddha said about how to develop concentration, how to develop understanding of voidness, and that if we develop that, it will eliminate our disturbing emotions and so on. If, from our own personal experience of working with this, we see that what Buddha said about all of this was true, and if the reason why Buddha was able to become enlightened and to know all of this was fundamentally compassion, the wish to benefit others, then there's no reason why Buddha would lie to us about karma. Well, I don't know about you, but for me, although I can understand the logic here, 
it doesn't really convince me on a very, very deep level. I'd like to understand a little bit better. Right? In other words, I'd like to understand something further about this so that it helps me to really be convinced in terms of the traditional textual way of becoming convinced through this inference. Okay, so it's clear that just through regular inference based on logic that one cannot prove that unhappiness results from destructive behavior. That it says very specifically in the text. And you're not able to see it with their perception, straightforward perception. So, what this draws me to do is to investigate more deeply, try to get more information, to try to understand the relationship between destructive behavior and unhappiness. This is only this always says, you know, we need to approach this like a scientist, and now we investigate more deeply. So we have the teachings of Abhidharma. These are special topics of knowledge. And there are slightly different versions of it given in the different schools of Indian Buddhism. We have a text from the Vaibhashika tradition, that's a Hinayana tradition, by Vasubandhu. And we have a Theravada, which is also a Hinayana version of this, by Anuruddha. So, now we look up in each of these textual traditions and commentaries. What is a destructive action? How would we define destructive behavior? And I'm going to be non-sectarian about this, and the approach is that each of these different analyses sheds light on this topic. And so we have uh, lists of different mental factors that always accompany destructive behavior. So we look at these mental factors and put it together from these different presentations and see if I have these mental factors, is that a happy state of mind or an unhappy state of mind? So let me go through, not exhaustively, but some of the main features on the list of what are the mental factors that are present with destructive behavior. And this gives us a clearer picture of what are we talking about here when we're talking about destructive behavior. Not just the action, it's also the state of mind that's with the action. In other words, what makes the action destructive? What makes it destructive is not just that it produces unhappiness, but that there are these various mental factors to go with it. So we have, I'll go through some of these factors. No sense of values. Right? This means a lack of respect for positive qualities or people possessing them. Something we can understand, isn't it? You know, there are some people that have no respect for law, for anything positive, for people who are positive, who are doing good. No respect. The next one is uh, no scruples, I translate it as, which means a lack of restraint from being brazenly or openly negative. This means, basically, I don't care about what I do. No restraint. No acting openly negative. Because I don't care what I do. Is that a happy state of mind or an unhappy state of mind? seems to tend, you know, I can understand that if we had, you know, these type of attitudes, we wouldn't be very happy people. Then naivety. Here, specifically, not knowing or accepting that gross suffering and unhappiness follow from acting destructively. So, I can act destructively, I can do whatever I want, and there are no consequences of it. And we could also have 
attachment and hostility, but those don't necessarily have to be there, but they can. But uh, we know we're very, very attached and clinging and so on. That's not a terribly happy state of mind. Neither is when we're very angry and hostile. No, I have to have it, I have to have it, I have to have it. That's not a happy state of mind. Don't ever leave me, I can't live without you. That's not a happy state of mind either, is it? Then, go further. No moral self-dignity. No sense of moral self-dignity. I don't have any sense of pride in myself. Low self-esteem and these sort of things. No, No sense of dignity about myself. I mean, this we find in sociology as well. If you tell the people that you're no good and you never allow them to have a sense of self-pride or self-dignity, then they feel, well, I can become a suicide bomber because, uh, you know, I don't value myself. You've convinced me that I'm a piece of crap. There's no sense of self-dignity. Right? The worst thing you can do to uh, an oppressed people is to take away their sense of self-dignity. It's not a happy state of mind. We have no sense of self-dignity. We think we're worthless. And then the next one is not caring for how our actions reflect on others. This is perhaps a very Asian mentality, but in Asian mentality, if I act poorly, this reflects on my family, on my caste, my social group, etc. So I don't care about that. This is what would accompany acting destructively is, I don't care how this reflects on my family. I don't care how this reflects on my nation or my gender, you know, or whatever. And another factor which is added by Anuruddha is a sense of restlessness. This is the opposite of being content and at peace with yourself. Right? Our mental state is unsettled, is uneasy. So if we learn about all these different types of mental factors that would accompany destructive behavior, then, you know, although I can't infer from that logically that unhappiness results from that, I can see a little bit more clearly the relationship between destructive behavior in general, characterized by these mental factors and unhappiness. Association makes much more sense. Then I can go back to what's given in the text. Oh, you know, Buddha is a valid source of information about the relationship. Now, just for the sense of completeness, although we're past our closing time, but if you permit another ten minutes, let's look at the mental factors that accompany a constructive state of mind, a constructive type of behavior, to see its relationship with happiness. Now we have a longer list, actually, putting together the information we gain from these three different uh, Abhidharma sources. So first we have belief in fact. So belief in that happiness comes from restraining from destructive behavior, unhappiness from destructive behavior. Very destructive state of mind, an unhappy state of mind that doesn't believe anything. You know, you present facts, you present what's true, and I don't believe it. It's not a very nice state of mind. Here, if we are presented with something which is a fact, which is true, we believe it. Next, we care about the consequences of our behavior on ourself and others. And I have a sense of fitness. This means that I have a good feeling about myself and that I'm able to restrain myself from hurting somebody, for example. Right? We have a good feeling about ourselves and our ability to control ourselves. So, we have self-control. 
That's a happier state of mind, isn't it, than one that feels, you know, ah, I'm completely out of control. You know, we're completely full, there's one more piece of cake left on the table, and so if we have no sense of control, well, eat it. And then afterwards, you feel bad about yourself, don't you? You feel a bit unhappy. Oh, I'm really stuck now, I don't feel very well. But if we are able to restrain from taking that poor, lonely piece of cake that's left on the table, then you feel pretty good about yourself, that, you know, well, I was able to control myself and not become like a pig in this. That's your state of mind, isn't it? Then the next one is serenity. That's an interesting one. This is a state of mind that is free from flightiness and dullness. Serenidad. When we are restraining from acting destructively, from yelling at somebody, our mind is not wandering all over the place, and it's not that we're so dull that we don't know what we're doing. So the mind is is clear and serene. We know what we're doing. Then we have a sense of values. A continuación, a continuación. Those that have positive qualities, and, uh, for positive qualities in general. And we have a set of scruples, so we care about what we do, so we will restrain from acting openly negative. And we have detachment, not attached. I have to say this, I have to yell, I have to uh, act destructively. And lack of hostility. And uh, non-violence, right? So, and joyful perseverance. We're going to persevere in uh, acting constructively. Right? What does that mean? That means, you know, well, no matter how hard it is to not eat that last piece of cake, I'm going to not eat it. Say no, thank you. I've had enough. Anuruddha adds even more mental factors. That balance of mind, which is free of attachment and repulsion. And we have mindfulness. And we have mindfulness. Tenemos presencia mental. Right? Mindfulness like the mental glue that keeps us in a certain state of mind. Calmness. Buoyancy. Buoyancy is the opposite of being foggy-minded or sleepy. In colloquial English, we would say, you know, feeling of being up. And flexibility. This is the opposite of basically... Stubbornness. Este es el... It moves stiffness. You know, I'm stubborn. I've got to eat this cake. I've... It doesn't matter that it's going to hurt your feelings. I've got to say what an ugly dress you're wearing. You know, we're stubborn. So this is the opposite of that, that we are flexible. Right? Also the opposite of arrogance. Arrogant feels that, you know, I'm right. I have to say what I want to say. Serviceability. Serviceability means a... Fitness and readiness for being able to apply ourselves to something beneficial. It's the opposite of having mental blocks. Este, I'm ready to este do whatever has to be done. Sorry I'm about the ready to put people. my hand in the toilet, even though the toilet is soiled, in order to take out the fly that is in the toilet and drown it. I don't have a mental block about that. Right? If you have no mental blocks, this is a much happier state of mind. If you have Entonces, mental blocks... Then you're afraid, insecure, and that's not a happy state of mind. You know, what's the big deal of what's in the toilet? I can wash my hands afterwards. The life of this fly is more important. She says, and on top of that is your own poop. But I said, not no, necessarily. It doesn't, it doesn't matter whose it is. 
My sister always accuses me of using extreme examples. <laughs> Somebody has drowned and can't breathe, and we need to do mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, but this person is ugly, or they are the same gender as we are, or whatever. If I have a mental block against putting my mouth by this person's mouth, then that would prevent me from helping this person. If I have no mental blocks, I mean, here's a person, they're drowning. I have to give a mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. So it's a feeling of being fit and ready to give mouth-to-mouth resuscitation to anybody who needs it. I don't have mental blocks about it. This is what we're talking about. When I say I here, I'm not talking about me specifically. I'm talking an attitude. Okay, and then a sense of proficiency. This is the opposite of a lack of confidence. And uprightness, which is uh, being honest, not <laughs> pretending that we have qualities where we don't have it, not being hypocritical, and hiding our weak points. So, I can understand if I feel self-confident, and fit, and I don't have mental blocks, and I care about what I do, and I have a sense of values, and so on, this is certainly a happier state of mind. So, it is by this type of investigation that then we start to have more and more confidence in the most basic law of karma, which is that destructive behavior leads to unhappiness and constructive behavior leads to happiness. And it's not that way, that causal connection is not that way because of Buddha made it up, made up the the law, uh, you know, because he created everything, he made up the law that Unhappiness comes from destructive behavior and happiness from constructive behavior. And it's not that happiness is a reward for acting constructively and unhappiness is a punishment for acting destructively. But we understand in a much more reasonable fashion the connection between the type of behavior that we have and our experience of happiness and unhappiness. And when we understand the mechanism whereby the karmic aftermath, these tendencies and potentials and so on from our behavior, how they can carry on into future lives, lifetime to lifetime, in terms of their relation with the clear light mind, then we can start to have confidence that the way that we behave in this lifetime is going to affect what we experience in future lifetimes. So this topic of how these tendencies and so on, how the continuity of that goes on into future lives. We'll speak about that tomorrow. But just to summarize and conclude this initial scope, to really be a person, to have transformed ourselves into a person of initial scope is no small accomplishment. We are fully convinced of our mental continuum going on without any end, Lifetime to lifetime, and we're fully convinced that the way that I behave now is going to affect what I experience in future lives, and now I have a precious human rebirth, which means that my behavior is not ruled almost exclusively by instincts like uh, a carnivorous animal that is just instinctively drawn to hunt and kill in order to eat or the way that a dog acts when it's in heat and just jumps on any other dog. But I have the human ability of intelligence to be able to discriminate between what is beneficial and what is harmful, and the ability to act on that. 
And that opportunity of having that type of intelligence is not going to last forever. I'm going to lose it when I die. And after I die, for sure, I will continue to exist and I could exist based on destructive behavior in life forms in which I don't have that capacity to uh, discriminate what's helpful and what's harmful, and I will just act instinctively, destructively again and again. And I will just build up more unhappiness and suffering. And I have this safe direction uh, that's indicated by true stopping and true pathways of mind. So there's this indication of a, of a direction of getting rid of all suffering and its causes, and I want to go in that direction, and it's going to take a long time to achieve this, so I have to continue ensuring that I have precious human rebirths. And although I'm aiming to get rid of disturbing emotions and unawareness and all this other stuff that is there on my mental continuum, the tendencies are there, although I'm aiming to achieve a true stopping of them as an initial step, since I can't get rid of greed and hostility and anger and so on, at least as an initial step, when they arise, I'm not going to act them out. I'm not going to act destructively. Right? I have this ability to discriminate what's beneficial and what's harmful. Right? I have this ability to discriminate what's beneficial and what's harmful. So, anger comes up, the impulse to yell at you comes up, but I discriminate. That's not going to be helpful. That's going to cause me to continue to experience unhappiness. Therefore, I refrain from acting it out. This is the basic mental framework of a person of initial scope. Then, if we want to add on top of this the various causes for completing the conditions of having a precious human rebirth, then it indicates in the text you need to be generous and persevering and patient and so on. And as I was explaining in terms of my own experience, having a strong connection with your spiritual teachers, having a strong connection with the Dharma, etc., so that when we have a precious human rebirth, the tendencies and impressions that are made from those factors, the close relation with the teacher and so on, will also ripen in the conditions of that precious human rebirth. Plus prayer, which here is talking about dedication. That, you know, whatever positive force we want to direct it toward this goal de todo of esto. precious human rebirth, etc. And there are plenty of these prayers. May I be protected and safeguarded by precious gurus in all my lifetimes, etc. Existen una enorme. That's where these fit in. So, if in this lifetime we can actually achieve being a person of initial scope, we will have made tremendous spiritual progress on the Buddhist path. Don't think that this is such a trivial, easy thing. And I'm talking about when it's sincere and heartfelt that we have this uh, scope, this motivation, this understanding, this conviction. Completely non-artificial. It's totally sincere and integrated. This is a great accomplishment. And again, what we said earlier... We are the best, the main witness to uh, judge and evaluate. Am I sincerely like this or am I just kidding myself? Or leaving out parts of it that I don't particularly like. Okay, so let's end here with the dedication. 
you think whatever understanding, whatever positive forces come from this, may it act as a cause for actually achieving and attaining these graded pathways of mind, kind of person of initial scope, intermediate scope, advanced scope, and actually attain enlightenment for the benefit of all.